0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com.
1: Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which is, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we truly mean in our hearts, thanks be to God. Praise God. We praise you from whom all blessings flow. We just acknowledge that, God, that every good and every perfect gift is from above. and That in and through you, we have so many reasons, reasons that we forget, God, to be thankful. It's easy, God, in the culture we're in, and the times we're in, we're, we're sort of spoiled materially, and we can be often more discontent about what isn't and what we don't have, rather than grateful for what we do and who we have. And so, God, we um, we come to you this morning. We just want to pray. We just ask. We just unite together real quick here. We just say, God would you make us to be more grateful people? Would you help us become a people that shine as a light in a dark world with gratitude and joy that comes from knowing you? So God, we pray that you would increase that in our lives. And thank you for a holiday like this in our national calendar that reminds us to be grateful and thankful. And so certainly God, before us with your word open, we have the instruction of your wisdom and your counsel for us. And that's certainly a reason to be thankful. And We also want to just invite the power and presence of your Holy Spirit here today. The Holy Spirit, you would come and make what's merely just a church service more than that because of your presence and your power. That's why we're here, God, to center not around a man and not around just simply my sermon and my words, but ultimately, God, we're here to center around you. And so, Jesus, help me get out of the way so that your spirit could minister right to our lives and right to our hearts in the way that only you can, where you minister to us specifically, but also to us collectively as a church today. So we we come before you as your kids, thankful for you as our Father. We ask that you would speak to us in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Okay. For the better part of this year, we have been trekking, tracking through the book of Ephesians, this first century letter that the Apostle Paul penned as a pastor to a young church like ours, writing to this church with the heart to encourage them to remain faithful in Christ. Have you heard that sentence before? A couple times, right? I mean, every week we're reminding ourselves of what's going on here. We don't ever want to just jump blindly into some verses uh, even though we're only studying one verse today, we, ha- we have to take sometimes a running start to get into it. The, gr- the broader context of Ephesians is amazing. Paul is really seeking to help Christians recognize and be rooted in the impact and the implications of the gospel over their lives. That things have changed, truly, even if you don't see it. Through faith in Jesus, your life is different. You have a new position that you must root in and live from. Now, here at the end of Ephesians, in this final section... What Paul does is he backs up and gives the greater context to that calling. I mean, all of Ephesians is this calling to be in Jesus, to root in Jesus, to remain in Jesus. And that's all good. But Paul's like, before I leave you, I must remind you of the greater context that your life falls in. And that context is the backdrop of a spiritual war. A spiritual war. We've been walking through this idea of warfare in Christ. We're in week five of this, of a few more. And it's in this section that Paul, as we've been reading our main text here, this sets it up for us, where Paul is encouraging Christians to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to take up the whole armor of God, to be armed, to be reporting there for duty, for a battle. And here's the reason why. For we do not wrestle in life. Ultimately, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not merely against flesh and blood forms of evil, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I mean, mean, this is the context that Paul says our lives are positioned in, especially as followers of Jesus. We're inviting more of this attack as we represent Christ. Therefore, Paul is saying, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. But Paul gives this really helpful context to our lives. That following Jesus is going, to, is going to involve some good days. It's going to involve some great days. But it's also going to involve some evil days. There are just going to be days where it feels like all hell has broken loose on your life. And can I tell you something? It feels that way because it is that way. There's such a thing as spiritual evil. And there's such a thing as a spiritual war that we find ourselves in. Paul wants us to be aware of this, but more than just being like too obsessively, consciously aware of the enemy, like how some people can get with spiritual warfare stuff, they just make the devil out to be too big of a deal than he is. And they're too focused on him and what he's doing to almost a fault. Paul doesn't want us to make the error of what C.S. Lewis calls being the materialist and not having any spiritual mind but he also doesn't want us to over-obsess over the devil to where our focus is on him rather than Jesus. You with me? As Christians, our focus is not on the devil, it's on Jesus. And so I'm growing up in a church where there's a lot made, this is a big theme of, of like in the end times, the Antichrist. That was always the big theme. I remember wondering like, why are we more aware of and conscious of and obsessed with the Antichrist than we are Jesus Christ? Isn't he the goal? Isn't he the focus? I think sometimes we get off track. Now, same in spiritual warfare. The focus that Paul wants for you is not just that you're in a spiritual battle, but more so, listen closely. You have in Jesus everything you need for victory. Let that sink into your heart and be more than something you learned in VBS. You know what I'm saying? You have, in and through Jesus, everything you need to stand against the wiles of the devil. Everything you need. It's not a losing battle because we're fighting from victory. And that's the context that Paul is giving us. And the way that we find this victory is by taking up what he calls the armor of God. So this is how Paul envisions this metaphor of how he envisions us actually experiencing that victory in the spiritual battle. It's by putting on what he calls the armor of God. Or we could say God's provided defenses. You know, to fight the the spiritual battles we're in, We don't put on the armor of self, amen? We don't put on the armor of our own strength and our own efforts and our own knowledge and our own ingenuity. It's not enough. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. So he, he uses this idea of the armor of God, it's employing what God has provided. And this is a metaphor. We've been saying it a couple different ways. I said it a little different uh, this time. Oh, no, it's the same way I've said it, actually. Um, but this is, is how we're thinking about this. The armor of God is a metaphor for how God has equipped us to identify and stand against the schemes of the devil. That's what, what Paul gives us. Really, the, the armor of God, it's this picture. You imagine Paul's in a, at this time in a Roman prison, and he is a different kind of house arrest. There's no like ankle thing or nothing like that. Like Paul is in a prison chained to a Roman guard, a couple of them. And as Paul is sitting there writing his letter out, he looks over and he gets some inspiration, right? <laughs> he gets some sermon content by looking at the, at the soldier. And he's looking at the armor and he's going, you know what, this, this reminds me of how God has provided for our, our defense. And he starts going through, here in Ephesians 6, the different pieces of a Roman soldier's armor and how it's reflective and representative in a lot of ways of how God has provided for us. He starts there in verse 14, using... This metaphor, And he says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. He starts with this belt. The Roman soldier's belt, it held everything together, right? Just like truth in our lives holds everything together. The truth of the gospel. We're, we, we don't, we're not held together by our feelings as Christians, thank God. Because they are fleeting, aren't they? One day we feel good, one day we feel God, the next day we don't. No, we're held together by truth. We know the enemy often comes to us with lies. So we got to be armed with the provided defense of truth. Last week, we talked about this breastplate of righteousness, both imparted and, and imputed righteousness that God has given the Christian through the gospel to protect our hearts against the attacks of the enemy as well. So there's all these metaphors from the different these different symbols of the armor that describe how God has provided for our defense. And then here in verse 15, here's where we get today. We're talking about your shoes today. Paul says having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is our verse for today. As Paul is describing how God has provided for our defense in the spiritual battle. Paul's like, let's talk now about your gospel shoes. Some of you guys are like sneakerheads. You're like, yo, where do I get that? Did that just drop? Where do I get this? the gospel shoes? Okay. Now, we don't often use the phrase that, that Paul uses here, but this is what Paul is talking about when he says, to shod your feet. That's not commonly what I tell my kids, by the way, who like, for some reason, never remember to put their shoes on. It's like, you ready to go? It's like, yeah, Dad. It's like, you're barefoot. I'm glad you did, You dolled it up, you know, knee up, but uh, we need some shoes on. I don't usually say, guys, go shod your feet, please. We have to get out the door, okay? Maybe I should start saying that. Um, it's often used, the word shod is used, don't we shod, I'm, I'm not a horse, I'm not a questioner in any stretch of the imagination, but you shod a horse, right? Any head nods for people, that uh, horse people? I got one, that's enough, Okay. You sh- I think you shot a horse, okay? The idea is that you fasten firmly. I-, I want you to imagine someone who's about to get to work. They put some boots on, and they you know someone, they like really tighten the laces. It's like today we play flag football. It's like you're not going to be out there with some unshod feet, all right? I may play barefoot. We'll see, all right? That would be very ironic if I get hurt playing barefoot after talking about the importance of shoes. I'll be wearing shoes today. Now, Imagine tightening up, lacing up your Nikes for the basketball game, lacing up your boots for the hard work ahead. That's the idea here, to put on the shoes that God has provided. We'll talk more about the imagery. Notice this, of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel. What has God provided for you and I in Christ? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the victory you and I have in, through, in and through Jesus in the battle because of God's faithful provision for your defense. That's what we're talking about. What God has provided for your defense. He's provided truth for our defense. He's provided righteousness. He's done it for our defense. And now this third, third part of the equipment. Listen to this. He's provided the gospel for your defense. God has provided for you the gospel of peace for your defense in spiritual battle. Now, the word gospel is not originally, historically, uniquely a Christian word. Uh, A gospel, we'll say a gospel, was any form of announcement that brought with it good news and glad tidings. Uh, it was often uh, the, the job of a herald, or what we would call an evangelist, of a kingdom who would run ahead on his feet, the beautiful feet of a messenger, would come into a town to announce the enthroning of a new king. And whether or not it was good news to you, I mean, we live in a, a time where, based on who's in office, it's either good or bad news to, to you. And uh, this was, has been the same throughout history, as we have different figureheads and leaders and regardless of how you felt about it, though, when a new king was in power, the herald was announcing good news. He wasn't going out saying, hey, guys, bad news. My boss is on the throne. Okay, sometimes we might have felt that way. But uh, that, that's not what would happen. He would announce the good news that the king has come. This is actually what Jesus came preaching. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus began his public ministry, the Bible says that he went everywhere preaching. Now, notice this. The gospel of the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes on the scene as the king, announcing the arrival of the king and the enthronement of the kingdom and himself as the king of that throne. And that is, here's the key word for good, for for gospel. That's good news. It's good news. The gospel is good news. Now notice the phrase that Paul uses. He doesn't just say a gospel. I love this defined idea of the gospel. There are many gospels, there's many forms of good news out there, but there is only one gospel of peace. There's only one gospel of the kingdom, it's the gospel. Now, what is this good news? This is an interesting idea to think about. This kind of, what the Bible teaches is really the announcement of this good news is kind of central to the theme of the Bible. So so Paul's saying God's provided this for our peace and for our, our spiritual battle. Uh, Paul talks about this more in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, you have what is the most descriptive explanation of the gospel. Most of Paul's letters to the church, by the way, were helping them get clear the gospel. Most most issues in churches are gospel issues. That's That's what you see in modern time, and that's what you see in... In the New Testament, most of the letters were about getting people back to the true gospel. The church at Corinth had been corrupted in their thinking towards a false gospel. This false gospel that said the resurrection of the dead is impossible. That's what makes it a miracle, by the way. But that it can't ever and God would never make it happen. And therefore, Jesus died for our sins, but he's still in the grave. That's what the Corinthians were believing. Which, by the way, is not good news. That's sad news. Another failed effort to save humanity. Um, So Paul wants to make things clear for the church, and so he says, I declare to you the good news, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you were also saved. Paul would say in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone. It's the hope of our salvation. If you hold fast, he says, that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's saying if Jesus isn't alive, you're believing in vain. That's what he goes on to explain there. But then he clarifies what he's spoken to them. He says, for I've delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul gives a three-point gospel message. Number one, Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for our sins. The idea there is as a substitution for our sins, in place of our sins, according to the scriptures. Just how God wrote it up, Jesus fulfilled that in going to the cross and dying for our sins. By the way, the gospel's not complicated. Don't overcomplicate the good news. Amen? What's the gospel? Jesus died for your sins, your sins that separated you from God. The brokenness in your life, God didn't look on at that and leave you like that. He provided salvation in his son Jesus. That's good news, that Christ died for our sins and that he was physically buried. He physically died. He was physically buried. He was physically dead, and he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, which means when you call out to Jesus to save you, he listens and hears. Because he's at the right hand of God. He's alive and well. He's soon to return. The gospel Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is, let me say this this is the announcement that the entire scriptures are pointing towards. This event. This announcement. What I love about this is is you see in almost every passage the gospel is is being either foreshadowed or there's substance to it. I like how Dave Harvey said this. I got this from Matt Chandler's book, The Explicit Gospel. And in The Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler, this is a total like Michael Scott, Wing Gretzky moment. Matt Chandler quotes Dave Harvey, okay? And now I'm quoting Matt, okay. The gospel, notice this, is the heart of the Bible, Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're reading the Bible and you're growing in knowledge, but you're always learning, not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because you're missing the point of the Bible. Jesus said, it's all ultimately about me. It's a portrait of Jesus. Every book, every chapter, every verse is either preparation for presentation of or participation in the gospel. This is what Paul is saying, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, as we go back to this section here where Paul is describing the gospel, I want you to notice. Paul is saying this, the central message of the Bible, the central message of heaven to your life today, the central message of Jesus, the central message of the Christian faith is an announcement of a historical event. An announcement. It's good news. It's a good announcement. It's not a bad announcement. It's not like, oh, did you hear the announcement? It's not like that. It's, as we learn at Christmas, it's good news of great joy for all people. Focus on this. This announcement that Paul makes is not merely theological or theoretical or or contemplative. The good news of the gospel is something that really happened in history. That God in history really became a man. He really lived a sinless and righteous life. That God in history really went to a sinner's cross. Jesus was crucified for you and me. Died in our place. That Jesus was really buried by golly, Jesus is really alive. That this really happened. And if you get this, it's good news that will change your life. Don't don't wander away from it. If you receive it and stand in it, your life is different. The good news. This is what Paul is talking about here. This, And I want to mention this again, this good news. Now, I think it's important to draw a distinction that uh, that Tim Keller makes often when describing the gospel. Uh, the late Tim Keller has made an effort to make sure people understand that the Christian method, message is centrally good news, not good advice. Don't get me wrong, like there's some great advice in that book. Like Read it, okay? Proverbs, all throughout it, great advice for how not to wreck your life. But the central message from heaven is not advice about what you should do. It's news about what's been done. It's an announcement about what someone else has done on your behalf. Amen? The focus is not you. The fo- because the problem is too great for me to fix, is the idea. That's why the emphasis is on Jesus and what he has done. I recently picked up a couple copies of Keller's uh, Advent book, Christmas book, Hidden Christmas. Of course, you know I'm going to recommend it to you. And in Hidden Christmas, uh, Tim Keller describes the contrast between the two. And so this usually is the point in the sermon where I stop talking and we we let Tim talk instead. So let's do that. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, in contrasting advice and an announcement, he says, Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what's already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. Get to work, fix the problem. News urges you to recognize something has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. Let's say, this is a great analogy, there's an invading army coming toward Boca Raton. He doesn't say that, right? What that town needs is military advisors, right? It needs advice. Someone should explain that the earthworks and trenches should go over there. The marksmen need to go up there. The tanks must go down there. However, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what then does the town need? It doesn't need military advisors. It needs messengers. And the Greek word for messengers is angelos, angels. The messengers do not say, here is what you have to do. They say rather, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing. Stop building fortifications. Underline this in your mind. Stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. Something has been done, and it changes everything. Good news versus good advice. This is what God has provided for you and I, not just for eternity, but for our day-to-day and the spiritual battles we face. God has provided. Now, think about this, because we're so used to, like, God giving me something to do. You know what I mean? We're task-oriented, hard-working Americans. <laughs> Everything in our life is reaping what we sow and getting out what we put in. And When I remind you that you're in a spiritual battle, your first thought is to go, okay, what do I need to do? Isn't it? and how counterintuitive is that how counterproductive does that seem but how true is it and how powerful is it that in the spiritual battle god goes here's what i've provided for you truth about what i've done and that is going to be defense for you i'm not giving you something to do i'm giving you something to trust in something that someone else has already done what paul says here is that this is god's provided defense for us shod your feet Get ready. The idea there of preparation is be ready for battle. You're not ready if you don't have your shoes on, kids, right? Be ready for battle through putting on the truth of the gospel, and I notice this, of peace. The gospel of peace. Um, another observation that Keller's made about the gospel is the idea of, you know, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter, where he's, he talks about the manifold grace of God. Which literally means the multifaceted grace of God. And Keller has used that biblical concept and he's made an imagery out of um, a diamond to represent the beauty of the gospel. You, you haven't yet seen the full picture of the gospel. You know, we were just singing that song, I'll Never Know How Much It Costs to See My Sin on the Cross. We can get you, the gospel, which is good news, can become old news to us, sadly heard it, okay, I sing about it, you came from heaven to earth, like I know the song, okay. But Keller's like, you can't ever get tired of learning, and you can't ever reach the limit of your understanding of the gospel, because it's not just this simple flat thing, he says it's more like a diamond with different faces and different facets, and you can look at it from this angle and see a different kind of beauty that you didn't see over here. That's why J.D. Greer, in his book *The Gospel*, he says, "This is so good." He says, "The gospel isn't the diving board that we jump off of into the pool of Christianity." Like I'm Christian now, I've, you know. The gospel was about ten years ago. I needed the gospel, but now I'm just here in the pool of Christianity, swimming along in what your own effort. You haven't sinned at all in the pool of Christianity, you know. This is why J.D. Greer says the gospel is not the diving board. He says the gospel is the pool that we swim in. It's what we jump into. It's what we explore. It's what, we, it's what most deeply is going to shape our love for God and our love for others. As we not just reduce it to one simple look that we've had, but we, we look at all of its different faces and its different aspects of beauty, we could spend an eternity exploring the impact of what Christ has done for us. And we even see this in the ministry of Paul. I love here, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of peace. You see what I'm saying here? It's one of the many ways you could see the gospel. If you look at Paul's letters, and even if you look at the New Testament, you have Mark, it's the gospel of the kingdom. And then you turn it a little bit. In Acts, it's the gospel of salvation. In Romans, it's the gospel of grace. In Galatians, it's the gospel of freedom. In John... It's the gospel of love, for God so loved the world. In Philippians, it's the gospel of joy. In 1 Thessalonians, it's the gospel of hope. And here in Ephesians, this has been one of Paul's main themes. It's the gospel of peace. This angle of the diamond that that Paul is looking at here, we saw it in chapter 2 when Paul talked about the differences that used to divide us and how God, through Christ, has made peace for all humanity, Jew and Gentile, whatever your background, religious, irreligious, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your whatever, the gospel has made peace for us to be brothers and sisters. Uh, But here in in chapter 6, verse 15, as Paul is talking about how God's provided this gospel for us, He calls it a gospel of peace. Our minds need to go more towards the peace that God has provided for us and him. Uh, This here is not just the gospel of peace between you and I, but this is the gospel of peace that Paul writes about in Colossians. Look at Colossians 1. This is what I believe Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 6. He He expounds on this in Colossians 1 where Paul shares the gospel of peace here. And he, he says it this way. He says, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God should dwell. All the fullness is the context there. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having, notice this, made peace through the blood of his cross. Here's the backdrop. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Not an admission that a lot of us would like to agree with, but this is what Scripture teaches about our condition apart from Jesus. But here's the good news. Yet now, you who were once alienated enemies, he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So, you know, for For good news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. Understood, right? Like if I'm like, good news, they caught the guy. You're going to be like, that sounds good, right? Cool. But if if the bad news was the guy that was hunting you, that's good news. You caught the guy. (laughs) I wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving this week, so that's great news. See, for good news to be good news, it has to have the context. And it has to invade bad spaces. And this is why, listen, as Christians, we can't be afraid to proclaim the bad news. The, the, we, by the way, we also don't want to be so eager and excited about the bad news where we drown out the good news. Don't be like a bad news bear, okay? But, but also, there is no good news if there's not first a bad space that it invades. We have to be truthful about the bad news, the bad news is, though we were created for relationship with God, Paul says here, we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's weight to that. The nature of that is we have positioned ourselves and made ourselves enemies of God. If there's anyone I don't want to be on the other side of in terms of favor and opposition, it's, it's, it's going to be God, right? The creator who's all-powerful, who's just and righteous. Well, Scripture teaches that Regardless of how you might feel, the truth of sin is it's in opposition to a holy and righteous God. And our condition, as we find ourselves apart from Jesus, is that of, the Bible says here, enemies. Enemies of God. Um, And here's the good news. Jesus taught us to do what with our enemies? Jesus is never going to call us to do something that he doesn't first do himself. Amen? The reason why we could ever imagine loving our enemies is because we first recognize that we were loved by God. That God demonstrated his own love toward me, and that while I was yet still sinning against him, while I had positioned myself as an enemy of God, with my life, was shaking my fist at God, God. Made peace for me. This is the gospel that God loved you even when you were his enemy. And here's the great news God doesn't in Christ come to you as a God of war to make war against you as his enemy. Let's get things straight. God will make war once and for all against his enemies. In the end, God wins. Lord of the Rings summarizes the whole thing. It's a big metaphor. Go watch the whole thing. But the message here is that in Jesus God's message to you his message to the world is not that God comes to make war against his enemies but he comes to make peace. Aren't you thankful that God initiated your peace with him? Aren't you thankful that he didn't leave you as a as a as a distant enemy of his? God has this skill to make his enemies his friends. <laughs> he loves them into the kingdom. He brings them into his arms. He accepts them into his love. This is the good news. That through Jesus, going to the cross, God has made peace for you and I. As it says in Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, look at this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that's got to really sink into your soul this morning. That you on your own could never meet the requirements of peace with God. That you could never do enough to make up for all the wicked things that you and I have done, but you don't have to. You see, the Christian is someone that rests in and lives from the assurance that I have complete peace with God because of what Jesus has done. That I'm, we're good. We are good from now into eternity. I'm good with God because of Jesus. And that peace is what settles into my heart. And that peace, Paul is saying, listen closely, Paul is saying that God has provided that for you and me in the spiritual war we're in. Now, all of that gospel context comes to a more practical head here. As Paul says, that message, notice this. It's been provided for you, that news for you in Christ, has been provided for you like, like shoes on the battlefield. Isn't that an interesting idea? So Paul's like, here's the gospel. He doesn't just say, believe it. He says, put your shoes on. Shod your feet. Get ready for battle. You're not ready for the battle if you don't have your shoes on. Okay? When I was in middle school, you guys want to hear a story about me in middle school? Okay. I'm sorry, you're about to. Now, we're going to get through this together, but you know, shoes, you well, know, there's so many different kinds of shoes. Don't be too self-conscious right now, okay? But, I mean, I got my loafers on. I'm not embarrassed, okay? Nordstrom Rack, great discounts. Now, in high school, in middle school especially, um, you know, I was born in the 1900s. So, in the late 1900s, on my way into middle school, right before this this uh, end of the world called Y2K thing happened. At that time, and I think, like, today, you d- you like... There's a lot of identity today in your shoes. You know, there's preachers in their sneakers. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot that's wrapped up in what's on your feet. But when I was a kid, your shoes were like your name tag. I was a skateboarder, you know? And so you would never dare see me in athletic shoes. It's like, what are you? You're betraying your community, okay? Wearing those Nike Shocks. Those were cool at one point. Now, I had, I remember my first pair of skate shoes. They were DCs. They were from a skate shop that closed in West Boca. Um, and they were white, and they had like a yellow stain on them. That's the only way that my mom got them for me. They were really cheap. She's like, you can have these stained white DCs. And I'd rather wear those stained white DCs than any cool Nike out there. more Nike, you know, took over the skate shoe market. That's another topic, but... Now, there's a problem, though. Like, one issue I had, my kids, it might be genetic, is my kids are never ready to leave the house for school, ever. They've never been ready. It doesn't matter what time we put them to bed, what time we wake them up. They're just like, we're, we're going to purposely not be ready every day. It seems like their plan. And um, it runs in the family. That was always my issue. My mom, basically, before iPhones and stuff, like, you, my mom would just be blaring the horn. And it's like, if you're not in the car, after, like, the sixth loud beep, The neighbors all hate us, but if you're not in the car, I'm gone and you're home. And I remember specifically one morning, I I made it out. It was like the fourth beep, so I was doing good. And as we're pulling into the parking lot, I looked down and I I realized I didn't have any shoes. Now, you need shoes to go to school. Now, I might have even realized on the way there, and was thinking the whole time, like, what am I going to do? How I can't tell her. Do so I just like barefoot it and see if I get kicked out? So I think pulling in, I, was, I did something like, oh, man, socks only. I had socks on. So my mom, she was creative. As a consequence, she drove me to Kmart. And she got me light up, sneakers and it wasn't like today you could probably wear them and be like yo what's up like boom, boom, she made me wear them for the whole week now I was a sinner and so I smuggled shoes into my locker and would change them out every day but that was only on until the second day the first day I had to show up with these light up sneakers and just just shine my way through the hallway and I need therapy. Now, I want you to kind of take that analogy and think about the humor in my situation. You're welcome. And the similar imagery of being a Christian that shows up to the spiritual battle without shoes on. You show up to the fights of your day in your own strength. You show up to the Christian life that you're walking in, and it's so focused on you and your performance. Imagine going into literal battle without shoes on. Paul is saying, that's the idea of somehow thinking you can fight the spiritual fight without the gospel the gospel is your footwear. Now the, the shoes that Paul had in mind were these babies right here. Some of you guys are like I have a pair of those. That's cool. It's all good. I'm going to move on from that. Now listen. These were 1st century Roman sandals. The word that Paul uses is sandals, and this is a modern version of it. You'll see a couple of details. Really thick leather on the shoes. There were hobnails on the bottom of on on the soles of the shoe. Um and many people think it was Alexander the Great that actually popularized this. He, he, was, he had this ability to really march over far distances and really conquer kingdoms through his ability to trek fast. Like his speed was kind of the key to war for him. And many th- people think he was the originator of these first century cleats is what these are. This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about the need for you and I. Let's take the metaphor home now as we close. As Paul thinks about you and I being equipped with the gospel, he has the imagery of Roman shoes. Paul is saying, God has provided for you good news in the fight like shoes of a Roman soldier. These are the three things. Jot these down. These are the three things that the gospel provides for our own spiritual battles. Like these Roman shoes, the gospel provides stability, agility, and mobility. These shoes provided all three of these things. Stability. Uh, most first century combat was hand-to-hand. And in order to fight properly, I needed some good footing. I needed these cleats to make sure that I was stable in the fight. So it provides stability for standing. Uh, Those same shoes would provide a sense of agility for avoiding when you would trek through a treacherous terrain. One of the the main tactics, and this is spoken to some, somebody recently about this in even modern warfare places around the world where there would be intentional sharp pieces of glass left on the floor with bacteria and all sorts of other uh, um, disease-causing uh, things. And, and one, one of the ways that an enemy would would slow down a marching army is by just leaving glass all over the force, all over the floor. And so if you're barefoot, you, you don't stand a chance. I mean, you guys know it's like, like when you stub your toe, do you know what I mean? Like just a bad toe will disable you for the week. You know what I mean? So if you don't have, if your feet aren't in good shape, you you need protective gear. You need shoes for agility to be able to avoid. And lastly, the shoes were for mobility. They gave an individual, a soldier, the ability to advance forward. And, And do you see all of the images here for our Christian life? How First, as Christians in the battle, the gospel has been provided for your stability, for your standing. This is huge. Like a pair of Roman Roman sandals, the gospel is the basis of your stability in relationship with God and not your performance. This is what Paul was saying in Romans 5 when he says that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I want you to notice this, through whom also... We have access, notice this, by faith into this grace in which we stand. We we, we maintain relationship with God. We pursue relationship with God, not on the basis of whether or not we've been worthy this week. That's not the good news. The basis of our stability And let me say, one of the primary things that the enemy will come attacking in your life is the truth of God's acceptance of you, especially when you've sinned. And he will draw your attention to a slippery slope called works. And listen, if your standing is based on your performance, you don't have good shoes on. Because you slip and fall, don't you? You fall short all the time. You you don't do the things you're supposed to do. God, I haven't been seeking you and you do the things that you shouldn't, that's a faulty foundation. Those are like light-up sneakers. Don't wear those. Th- those are n- that's not the proper footwear. Thanks be to God that our standing in Him is in grace. We stand in grace. And grace, it's not opposed to effort. Grace produces things, but it is opposed to earning It's opposed to you having to be good enough to stand in relationship with God. Listen, I I don't think anything will drive your heart further from God than the misbelief that he's mad at you, angry with you, and doesn't want to talk to you. Nothing will drive you further than a heavenly father who doesn't want to be with you. And nothing will draw you closer than the confidence that your father wants to be with you more than you want to be with him. Nothing will bring you closer to God than the confidence that he wants you there. That he sees you not in your sin, but in his son. He sees you in grace. And some of us have fallen into the trap of the enemy. We've stopped seeking God because we've made it about us. And there's just no greater motive to wanting to be with God than knowing that he loves you. I'm just telling you. There's no greater motive than knowing that you stand in his grace. That's your stability. It's not just your stability, but notice this. The gospel is also provided, not just for a consistent relationship with God as inconsistent people. The gospel provides me a stable foundation to, to, to walk with God and know him. The gospel also provides me, now notice this a certain, like Roman shoes, a certain agility to avoid the wrong step. Paul's talked about this, walking circumspectly is the phrase he used, which is like if you drop glass, you, you, you don't just kind of walk, you take time to, to, to step closely and carefully. And like Roman shoes, the gospel is provided for us to be able to do that well. Now that's foreign to a lot of us. A lot of us, we, we've never thought about the gospel as power before I sin. We have to think of the gospel as what I go to after I sin, right? It's like I sinned again. Let me come back to the gospel and the good news. By the way, keep doing that. But the gospel is so much more powerful than just a pillow to fall on when you fail. The Bible teaches that the gospel is the ultimate power of God for holiness in our lives. This is Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation, notice this, has appeared to all men. That's the gospel. Notice this, teaching us, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. (laughs) Paul's like, all of these things are the product of a gospel-centered Christian who so is saturated in the grace of God that it actually produces a righteousness that the law never could. See, when you're living according to the law, you're living on your best behavior for God. When your obedience is all about what you can do to not do bad things and do the right things, you will constantly, you'll be on the seesaw of either pride or shame all day long. Either you're like, I'm better than everyone else, or I'm worse than everyone else. And here's the truth, you're neither of those things. (laughs) You're not better than anyone in this room, but good news, you're not really worse than anyone in this room. You could be more depraved, that's true. But the truth is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what the law could not do, Christ has done for us. And now we live not according to the law. This is Galatians. Why? You, you have the gospel and the spirit, but now you're in the law. No, no, no. The gospel, my identity in Jesus, which precedes my activity, is the greatest power for living the holy life ahead of me. Not feeling really, really bad for what I did. Conviction's good. But I'm just telling you, your shame is not going to do it. It's not going to last. It's not going to be enough fuel for you to be holy. It will burn out fast. But the love of God, I'm telling you, what will happen is you will walk with Jesus your whole life because his love compels your life. That's why Paul's like, or John says in 1 John, he's like, don't love the world. He says that, right? Like the things in the world. And then he says this. If anyone loves the world, he says, here's the problem. The love of the Father's not in him. Some of us think the way that I need to be holier is more law. No, you need more love. If you were more deeply loved by God, I guarantee you, you'll start loving him more. And you'll want to. You'll start loving others more. There's no motivator for the love of God and the love of man like the love of God. Like the gospel. God provides the gospel not just for our stability. God provides the gospel for our agility. Last one. God provides the gospel for our mobility. This is another reminder here. This is, by the way, again, these are, this is our weaponry in the spiritual fight. The enemy wants to attack your relationship with God. He wants to attack your standing with him based on your performance. And we overcome him by the blood of the lamb. We go, well, good thing I was never in this because of me in the first place. I'm standing here not because I deserve to stand here. I'm standing here because it is finished. And that's true. And then the gospel comes, and, or the enemy comes, and he wants to attack your life of holiness and character. He wants to draw you into law-keeping, legalism with your legal list. Or he wants to draw you into a life of, of antinomianism or licentiousness, allowing grace to excuse your sin. And there's another way for that. The gospel provides true power not just for forgiveness, but for power over sin in the first place. And then there's this, of course, Paul has in mind, especially as he calls it the gospel of peace. He's gotta be thinking about Isaiah, who talks about the beautiful feet of those who bring the gospel of the kingdom. Who bring, actually, Isaiah says, the gospel of peace. Mobility. These shoes also could get you over far distances. The, the picture there is, of course, advancing the kingdom of God through the gospel as a Christian. Um, here's another way to think about this. God's given you marching shoes in the gospel. We, we have, Listen, your life isn't worth nothing. We have work to do. We have places to go. We have marching orders. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those are steps of the gospel. That's that's gospel advancement. Uh, We see this, I love this in the the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel, it, it builds up to this point where Jesus sends his disciples out to preach the gospel. But Mark 1, it says Jesus comes preaching the gospel. That's how it starts. You have to like hear the good news so that when you share it, you're not like, oh, I shared the gospel today, you know. But you go, it's good, like you tell good news, don't you? You tell it. So if it's good news to you, it'll be good news through you. You with me? So you got to receive it. It's spoken to you. It's not a checklist. It's, it's a joy. Jeremiah says, it's like a fire in my bones. I have to talk about the goodness of God. And that's Jesus. He comes speaking the good news. And then in Mark 13, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. He's like, this gospel must go to the whole world. So he comes speaking it. It's all about the gospel. He's like preaching the good news. Good news is here. And then he's like, This thing's got to get out. This thing has got to get into the hearts of people in Boca Raton. And then he says, Go. Bring it there. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Romans 10, Paul says, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe? This is, guys, this is too good of news to keep to ourselves. Are you following me? How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless unless they're sent? Which I think is one of the big issues we have. A lot of us, we are not on mission because we don't see ourselves as a sent people. We don't see ourselves as sent wherever we are, but Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I send you. We have, to, we have to recapture this vision of sentness over our lives, that you are not where you are of your own volition and your own decisions and on accident. God has you where you are, wherever you are, for his kingdom. It's his providence over your life. Maybe this looks like a different season than the last season. It was a lot easier to see that last time than it is today. But it stands true. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Beautiful feet. Isn't that cool? The kingdom of God. God looks on at us. He's like, you got, you have, if, you're, if you're on mission to make Jesus known, and whatever that looks like in your context, that might not look like standing up on your desk and shouting the gospel that may look like the ministry of Jesus where you welcome people into your life that religious people never would, and you begin to embody the good news to them. You, you begin to enter into relationship with them, and you, you begin to build bridges of trust. Maybe they have hurt. Maybe they tune out anybody representing Christianity because of its interweavingness with politics and all the issues in the church, but, you, but they see something in you different, and through that, build, that bridge of trust, you're able to share with them the truth of the good news, of how God really feels about them and how it's true. It's not just another religious idea, but Jesus is really alive. Like this happened for you. If that's you, you have beautiful feet. You have been called to strap on the shoes of the gospel of peace. I want to close with this last thing. I'll invite the band to come up. Uh, It was about two years ago. um, Right after... This thing called COVID, which was actually, holy cow, four years ago. I just said two years. That's how hard the past four years have been, huh? Did you know that? Four years ago? That was Okay. I had a, I had a toddler, and that all happened. Now, it was right after COVID, so maybe three and a half years ago. And it was a hard time um, for me. I don't mean to preach myself here. I'm not trying to do that, but it was a hard time for all of us. Especially, like, I don't recommend, like, planting a church into COVID. Just don't, if it's like, if you're thinking about church planting, just don't do it into a pandemic. Now, there was a service we had just started meeting again. We were studying the minor prophets. And I don't know her name. I don't know where she came from. I don't know where she went. I don't know who she is. Probably an angel. But, of course, she was a sweet old lady. She came into our gathering. She came up to me after the service. And she spoke life and identity and calling over me. She put, like, courage in my spiritual spine to keep going. It was very meaningful. And she handed me this piece of paper, which actually I pinned it next to my desk from anonymous, sweet angel lady. And she said, Andrew, every day, she says, I love this. Get your eyes off of your life, off of your circumstances, and begin to start your day. She said this, I want you to start praying every day for your Bob. I go, I got some bobs in my life. No, she's like, say, God, give me a burden today. Pray every day and say, God, give me your heart for my day. Don't let me default to my heart for my day, which is usually self-centered. Give me a burden for the people around me. God, give me opportunities today. Believing that I'm sent with something to give. Give me opportunities, however I can, to make you known. And God, give me a boldness to keep talking about you everywhere I go. To not be shy about who you are and what you've done because the news is too good to hold back. Listen, we're entering into a week of Thanksgiving, aren't we? And if there's... A lot of challenges in your life that are keeping you from really stepping into this week with gratitude. I want to just remind you of 1 Corinthians 15 today. That we can say thanks be to God. Because as we were reminded here today, we have been given victory in Jesus that we can never attain on our own. If you're in Jesus today, listen, you're in good hands. And trust in that. If your life is still in your hands, let me say you're not in good hands. The Father's arms are open wide. Come give your life to Him.